0: Is your sales team unable to close deals because you don't have a SOC 2 report? Or do you have a SOC 2 report that is being managed by a team of employees every year?
1: Well, we have a solution for you. Vanta has built connected software that makes it easy to both get and renew your SOC 2. With Vanta's continuous monitoring solution, you avoid hosting auditors on site and you avoid capturing screenshots, proving that you are compliant.
0: Vanta partners with over two dozen AICPA-accredited audit firms who are all trained to file your SOC 2 report directly inside of Vanta at a fraction of their normal cost. Hundreds of companies like Lattice and User Testing are leveraging Vanta today to streamline compliance and focus on building their businesses.
1: Equity listeners can redeem a one thousand dollars off coupon at Vanta.com/equity. That is Vanta.com/equity.
0: Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. My name is Alex Wilhelm and I am joined today by two of my favorite people, including Natasha Moscarenas, one of our early stage venture capital reporters. Natasha, how are you doing?
1: I'm feeling great. Thank you to everyone also who left us a kind review recently. That was amazing and cheered up my day.
0: Oh yeah, no pressure to do that, but we did really appreciate it. And now turning to the source of all of our bad reviews, we have Danny Crichton. (laughs) I was going to say, what, are the, what, are the, what is this concept of good reviews? Because I, I, I think a two star is pretty damn good for me. Stop relating your middle school transcript to the show, Denny. They're different things. Um, Boom!
1: <laughs> middle school jokes.
0: Danny's one of our managing editors here at TC, so if something isn't well managed, it's his fault. And I'm excited about today's show uh, for a couple of reasons. One, we have a ton of great stuff. Just a lot of really interesting things to go through. And also, it's my last show for a little bit. I will be off next week. And so into the capable hands of the rest of the team, Equity Shall Rest. And I will return with grades for everyone on their performance. But on the subject of education, there's new tools out there in the Zoom world for teachers, Natasha. And what is going on there?
1: Yeah. So the former co-founder of Blackboard, which is a learning system that I don't know if you guys used in college. I used it to check grades and syllabi. You don't like it, Alex. It's terrible. Alex is
2: just putting two thumbs down
0: on the the Cisco <laughs> and Echo version of software ratings. I mean, guys, Blackboard was notoriously bad even like 10 years ago. I can't imagine it's gotten better.
1: Well, well, thankfully, the co-founder has, you know, he went to actually Precision Hawk, which is a drone startup, left that in January, is now onto his new company, Class EDU. And their first product is not so casually called Class for Zoom. For everyone listening, I suggest reading my story because the demo does a really good job and I won't be able to do it as great of a job. But the features are basically creating a Zoom if it was genuinely built for teachers to lead a class beyond kind of a one-on-one discussion, which is kind of how Zoom is right now. So some of the features, I'll run through them really quickly is a teacher can kind of launch live assignments, quizzes and tests Then it can see students complete them while also seeing their desktop view. You have to give permission, but and we can debate on if that's too much power or not. It can also kind of unmute a class or mute a class, which is good for early learners. Its structure kind of puts the teacher on the left and lets students toggle between different views of the TA, friends, assignments they're talking about. And then finally, it lets students break out and ask a teacher a question, kind of do a one-on-one Zoom with them on the side in case they're shy and don't want to talk in front of a whole class. So those are some of the big features.
2: I feel like the modern teacher is becoming like a DJ. They've got to have, like, four records spinning at all times. They've got to be, like, roaring in the crowd. I mean, this is intense. Like, Whoa. you know, to me, the only thing I need in a classroom is a mute button to shut everyone up so that you can just lecture for an hour straight.
0: That's why, Danny, I think you'd be a great professor at uh, the graduate level, but I think you'd be a trash <laughs> fifth-grade leader. Um, Natasha, I have a question about the software itself. So is this kind of a a sidecar to kind of the Zoom software that we know and use and, and honestly like? Or is this an entire separate video chatting service as well as software for teachers to also interact more with the students?
1: Yeah, so I think it's complicated by design. And I have a feeling that Class EDU, know something we don't about Zoom's appetite for acquisition, because it just seems like the startup is pitching itself to be acquired. Right now, to answer your question, it is layered on top of Zoom. Zoom's SDK is $0. And so free, easy to access, and developers are building on top of it. But two kind of deal sweeteners that make its relationship with Zoom acquisition territory is one, they are a Zoom reseller. So they make money when schools buy Zoom. And that relationship makes them a formal partner of Zoom. And two, the reason I'm writing about them now is that they raised a 16 million seed round co led by GSV and Emergence Capital. Emergence invested in Zoom. They also um, have investments from the guy who named Zoom, um, (laughs) who um, is Jim Scheinman, and Bill Tai, who was Zoom's first investor. So, very meta
0: very very meta so your your bet here is that they have built essentially the educational zoom variant on top of zoom and as a zoom reseller they're going to make zoom money themselves money and so eventually zoom's going to be like well we'll just tuck that into our our overall platform
1: yeah furthermore like i i asked michael and i was like well you know one way to avoid in case zoom changes its mood like twitter notoriously did and kind of wiped out a ton of apps are you trying to build on blue jeans or hangouts or whatever and he was like no not no need
2: <laughs> as a reminder blue jeans is now owned by our parent company Verizon yes. uh, so so we've now checked our box for
0: including a product placement <laughs> from our parent company <laughs> And as a second reminder, Emergence Capital backed Crunchbase, where uh, Natasha and I used to work. Not that that matters, <laughs> but if we're, if we're doing disclosures and, while and we're fine. here. And bill Tai used to be a colleague of mine at CRP, so we're, we're <laughs> all conflicted. All right. I actually built GSV Ventures headquarters by breaking by <laughs> hand. It's and good.
1: we are using Zoom right now, and we're right. dependent on Zoom to record equity. So our um, life is going to be ruled by all of these people.
0: <laughs> Natasha, do you see this uh, this product getting actual wide kind of? market uptake? Do you think that schools are really going to use this? Is it affordable? I mean, it's cool, but to me, like, it's a cool product. I don't know how it's doing kind of out there in the world.
1: My biggest problem with this company is that right now it's only usable for people who have Macs. Any student can kind of still tune into the class, but it only gets that really strong capabilities like the formatting and the toggling between screens and live testing in the way that Class Edu is selling itself if you have a Mac. And so... Michael said that the 16 million will be used to working on <laughs> Chromebooks, which is the low income, most accessible type of computer out there. It's like kind of your minimum viable product. It's usually where people start. And so it, it, it's successful 100% depend on if it moves past the Mac.
0: Okay. Uh, I'm surprised they're not going to Windows next, given that I think more teachers have Windows-based PCs than Chromebooks, and I own a Chromebook, and it's garbage. Uh, anyways, uh, one thing we've all been doing, it's fine. It's just, it's a little netbook. It doesn't do anything. It's not a teaching device. It's just it is most accessible though.
1: So I feel like that's, I, it's going to be doing Windows, but I think the most accessible and the thing that I was like, I want to see this happen is Chromebooks, because those are the ones that like IBM and Google are donating to people that can't, that can't afford their own computer. And so, yeah.
0: It's so one way to win out. hearts and minds is just to have a huge lost leader called giving stuff away. All right. Yeah. Um, one thing we've done during the pandemic, or at least I've done during the pandemic, is do a lot of book clubs. I'm in, I think, three at the moment. And it's been super invigorating to like have people with whom I get to read and kind of push me in new reading directions. And there's a startup called Book Club, Natasha, that raised $6 million that you were about today, I think. So tell us what's going on and why does a book club need money?
1: Yeah. Well, actually, let me first ask you guys a question. What are the favorite... I know you both of you are crazy readers what is kind of your favorite use case of a book club like what's the biggest benefit of doing a book club if at all in your ads danny you start i'm really curious i
2: think i think book clubs exist to remind you that there's way too much to read and you should never read with other people first of all i've never had a book club successfully come together with more than three people in which everyone's actually read the book and has actually thought about what the book means dude you need to get some new friends book clubs always fail because of the marginal I try to, I try to upgrade, but you know, at the same time, like the reality is there's just so much content. There's so many books, there's yeah. so many things to do. You read one book and guess what? Everyone else read something else because I got to or whatever. And, and it's very hard to centralize everyone on run, one topic. But Alex, what about your experience? Uh,
0: much more positive than yours. I mean, for example, one thing that I like about book clubs is that they have a way of dragging me in new directions. And so I'm in a book club with actually a bunch of people from my area of whom I'm the only man. And so the books that get selected by that group probably aren't the things that I would think of first. And so they've dragged me in in new directions. I've read books that I wouldn't otherwise have picked off the shelf and they've diversified not only my author base, but also just what I've been reading into. And it's been super, super mentally worth it. So for me, it's it's diversification and also it adds some rigor. So I read a lot of stuff for fun and it makes me have some other stuff on a more regular cadence. And so I find that to be just useful to make sure I don't fall behind a certain kind of like Overall pace of reading.
1: I mean, I'll add my take and then I'll introduce what book club is up to. I am part of one and we have obviously struggled during the pandemic a little bit. Like wine and cheese kind of brought us together to talk about books all the time and we don't do that anymore. But it definitely gave like a second life to a lot of the chapters and books I read when I was reading them. It was, we were reading educated, which everyone had all talked about and, you know, there was so much content out there, but still sitting with people and just breaking down a quote for 20 minutes felt like a very cool version of English class. And so it made me more incentivized to read. But I'll stop talking about book clubs to talk about book club, a new startup that just raised 6 million in seed financing to basically create a masterclass-esque experience with authors to engage with our book clubs. So let's say we're reading a book by Jhumpa Lahiri. She can come into our book club. We can request for her to join us Or we can, you know, pull up a video on a question we have that she has already answered and kind of integrated into our book club. The way that the co-founder David Blake described it is taking authors from behind the book to part of your experience.
2: You know, I've been reading William Durschwitz's The Death of the Artist the last week or two, which came out in July. One of the things he really emphasized in the writing section of a book is, is that, you know, book tours were not a thing until the 90s. And today, an author on average will do something like 90 to 100 in-person engagements to sell their book as part of a kind of a big, you know, any kind of large publisher book tour. And so to me, what's interesting here is the ability to actually scale. You know, The book tour is not very scalable. It's actually miserable. Almost all authors will complain bitterly about the book tour. And in fact, Zoom has been one of the best things that's ever happened to the book tour, because you can stay at home and actually do writing and do the work of an author as opposed to Moving in your jalopy from you know uh, Holiday Inn to Holiday Inn Express across the Great United States, and so I actually think there's a huge opportunity to you know bring in in the way that MasterClass brought high quality production values, consistency, and sort of an aspirational tone to books, right? So even something like The Odyssey by Emily Watson's copy, uh, hopefully coming up. That's another one of those book clubs that was like five years ago that never actually happened, but you know uh, I could imagine if if she came on. To a book club and had a two-hour engagement with high quality production values it's it's a way to like bring out the quality of the work that you're reading and to me that's really exciting now how that makes money and whether it should have six million dollars of seed funding that's an interesting question given that i feel like there's so many book focused platforms that have tried to get built over the last couple of years that have just not been successful everything from goodreads which sort of got miserably bought by amazon has never really been approved since and onward so it'll be interesting to see how they they perform i can
0: see the market for it though because i can see the often, market yeah yeah like, I, I, like if i want to get M- N.K. Jemison to show up i presume it's gonna be very very hard because she's a freaking superstar but like there are authors that i read who are smaller whose books probably sell less and you know i would definitely pay just thinking like out loud about money, which is always a little weird. But like if we read a book for book club and I could bring it out there for like $200 for like half an hour and like have them like talk to us about the book and like answer our questions. I think I would definitely do that a couple times a year just because I, I love that kind of like being able to talk to the, the source material person. So, you know, I can see a lot of demand for this. The Margins could be OK for book club itself. I just wonder how many nerds out there are like, me, I guess.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I was I was talking to him and he was saying the the co-founder and he was saying that A lot of their success will depend on getting those big aspirational names on the platform first similar to masterclass having you know serena williams or what's his face the crazy cook
0: oh um shouty man
1: shouty man
0: um problematic
1: shouty man bad
0: hair terrible television uh danny you're the pop culture expert
1: Gordon Ramsay. Gordon Gordon Ramsay. Ramsay. Gordon Ramsay. There you go. That's the
2: producer contribution right there.
1: (laughs) But yeah, so that success will be related to that. And they're going to do something similar to Masterclass again with they charge a subscription fee. So it'll definitely be for like bookworms versus people who kind of have the one-off experience. I I
2: would like to point out that everyone in the audience now knows we have good taste. Because no one actually knew who Gordon Ramsay was. (laughs) (laughs) Except that his existence... Guy Fieri uh, also exists, uh, but thankfully we don't know about that. Uh, the subscription will be interesting, right? So I think the question, you know, this is what always I think harms a lot of book clubs is is it's the continuation, right? It's easy to do monthly or maybe quarterly. It's hard to keep people engaged over a long period of time because of work and everything. So maybe maybe the right structure, keeping people up to date, so that they know, gee, the author's going to be here. I'm going to be embarrassed if I don't read this book. I want to ask yeah. something completely stupid. So maybe that'll be a great accountability mechanism.
0: And finally, like, you know, if you said, like, if you subscribe to this, you can have, you can talk to John Scalzi or watch John Scalzi talk about his books every couple of months. I would, you know, I, I read all the stuff that he writes lately, you know, so like to me, like I, I'm a, I'm a fan of him as I am of like a band, you know, it's like that. this hits me in all the right spots.
1: I'm going to end with one last thing that I think people should start looking at is like, I've been hearing from, I heard talk to two pre-seed early stage founders in EdTech this week. There's definitely the version With class for Zoom that is like, we are Zoom, but better. And then there's the version of book club that's like, actually, we don't want to be anywhere near Zoom. And so I think we're seeing like the divide of like EdTech that's like, we're going to live on top of Zoom and just admit it. And we're going to see the version of EdTech that's like, we're going to compete with what you think you deserve versus what you actually deserve
0: i mean all that sounds great because it gives us options and options are good as a consumer i love competition i love seeing people try out new things speaking of people trying out new things guys we have to talk about kind of the fintech world which has seen a lot of money and change in the last couple of years giving consumers more options with what to do with their money including things like Robinhood that let people trade for free across crypto equities and options and of course chime which brought kind of a, a no-fee neobank to the world it, into the u.s market to a, a big degree the big news this week is that Robinhood raised more money And this is the fourth time I've had to say that this year because they've raised two mega rounds of two tranches apiece. And the news this week is that they added 460 million to their Series G, which was only 200 million before. Maybe that should've been a hint to us that more money was coming. But they're now their Series G is 660 million at an $11.7 billion post-money valuation. Whew, and that was on top of its preceding quite large, I believe $600 million Series F from earlier this year. So that's the Robinhood news. Also, inside the last week or maybe eight days, Chime added $485 million at a $14.5 billion valuation claiming EBITDA profitability. So what we have seen in the last 12 months is Chime and Robinhood raised a combined uh, $2 billion plus. And that seemed to me like a milestone in consumer-facing fintech. And I wanted to just talk about it because the Robinhood effect is, is real, I think to some degree, Danny. So when you heard about all this new money for Robinhood, first impressions, what were you thinking? I mean, I think as a reminder, I mean, yes,
2: we actually talked about the last round and the lack of dilution at the time, if you remember, on equity. Uh, You know, this is not uncommon as you get to later stages where there are investors, it could be pension funds, it could be insurance companies who just need more time to write checks, right? So my guess is they had someone in mind, you know, total speculation here, but I can imagine there's someone who needs a six-month lead time to write a multi-hundred million dollar check. Uh, And so you, you write the round, you do a first close with the money from the VCs who are much faster- but then your insurers, your pension funds, and others who need a lot more diligence time, they have to do a lot more work, you know, they're, they're leaving space for them basically on the cap table. So my assumption is it wasn't a sort of random decision. It wasn't like an extension round that came at the last minute. It's actually money that probably was already agreed to months ago with the last round. And, and look, it's a sign that the company is just doing, you know, adamantly well. Like, I mean, it just, it is now broken through much of the way that we were just talking about Zoom. It is broken through into pop culture you know, it is a more consumer focused app than Zoom. I mean, who would have thought that an enterprise video conferencing <laughs> SaaS app would become a verb. But like, you know, ironically, Robinhood hasn't verbed, right? You don't Robinhood your stocks or something like that.
0: No, man, you you YOLO those call options is what you, you
2: do. You, you know, you <laughs> Wall Street bet it all the way to the, the moon. But I, I think it's also a sign that, you know, there's still a lot of potential for Robinhood.
1: I was just going to ask kind of what, you guys think is next for Robinhood. I saw in your story Alex that Chime is IPO ready kind of within a year's time. But what does Robinhood say about that?
0: It's a really good question. I think what we have a good idea about with Robinhood is how fast its revenue is scaling. What we don't know is how good of a business it currently is. Like I don't think we know their gross margins. I don't think we know their kind of current operating margins. There's a lot of questions. So it's very hard to say IPO ready or not. Like with Chime we know Ebadah mm-hmm profitable. And I clarified with them, it's not adjusted EBITDA positive, it's pure EBITDA positivity, which matters. They're not ripping out share-based comp from that. So we know that Chime is effectively very rich, has about a billion in cash, can go public whenever it wants, it's going to wait a year. Fine. Robin had more of a question. But if you go back to Q2, their payment for order flow revenue alone was around 180 million, which put them on, you know, Danny, like about 700 million plus. Is it Robin Hood or Chime? Robinhood, sorry. Okay. So Robinhood, we knew that in Q2. They have other incomes as well. So they probably did north of 200 million in revenue in Q2, putting them on an 800 million plus run rate at the point. More capital comes in, they can expand further. Things look great. My question is, does the trading boom dissipate at some point? And if so, how much does that hurt them? That's my, my question. But to me, Robinhood is at least big enough, Natasha, to go public. The question is, are they profitable enough? And I don't know the answer to that.
2: And then uh, I think on Chime, I mean, one of the dynamics you see in 2020... You know, for all these neobanks, is you know the incumbents are just getting eviscerated. I mean, you can look at some of the cap uh, market caps for some of the the traditional incumbent banks, but look, the brick and mortar retail bank with thousands of locations and expensive retail corridors in this environment, where a lot of folks can't even go outside of their homes, is quite possibly the worst business model you can have for a bank today. And so, for a Chime to come in, which is app based, which you can do at home, you can run transactions. Chime's whole model is supposedly feeless which which is debatable, but like that's sort of their models to reduce a lot of the fees for financial services, mostly because they have that efficiency. You know, they don't have the retail banks. A lot of things are automated. And, you know, to me, like a lot of these new banks are just going to come into their own in the next couple of years. You know, it's not a, online banking has been a thing for literally 20 years. But nowadays, with the infrastructure in place,
0: there's real scale there. And I think Chime's going to be one of the first out of the, uh, the gate. So I wrote a story about this kind of collection of funding rounds and impacts. And I, I went back through what we kind of know about Chime's revenue growth. And if you go back to stories written in November and December of last year, people were saying 200 million in revenue for the year or 300 million in revenue for the year. Well, Chime told us, and to your point about the success of this model, that they've grown transaction volume and revenue, top line, by 3x this year. So if it was 200 million last year, it's about 600 million this year. If it was 300 million last year, it's about 900 million this year. Mm-hmm. Those are legit numbers. That's not just to say, that's not screwing around. That's you know rather impressive. So these two companies that have now reached Decacore valuations are not priced at insane revenue multiples like Snowflake was post IPO. They're actually somewhat reasonable. And then the question becomes margins, profitability and IPO timing. So very but exciting if- stuff. We will see them soon.
2: And one of the interesting dynamics I learned for today, I wrote a funding story, which we're not going to talk about for a lot, uh, about Petal, which is a consumer credit card built around cash flow instead of traditional credit scores. But one of the things that actually came out of that conversation, they raised $57 million from Velar Ventures, their third time that Velar has dupl- uh, tripled down on the company, was that credit scores have actually increased this year. And the reason is, is because the government's direct injection of, of money and funding to individual taxpayers, people paid off their debt. Actually, debt has been massively paid off in the last six months and so for a lot of these banks you know if you suddenly get 2600 bucks in the mail where do you put it that's actually been a huge issue for a lot of folks banks were closed when those checks were written and so they oh. had to find ways to create direct deposit accounts and so it wouldn't be surprised me if chime got a huge boost from the you know the surplus checks and not only that like because of the automation the scale their expenses did not grow linearly with the transaction volume and the revenue growth and that's why you're starting to see this ebitda positive sort of margin there and that means, uh, as far as I'm concerned, they're ready to go public. Like, they're ready to, you know, this could be a SPAC next week. Danny, no. There's a lot of fintech SPACs. So, uh, <laughs> in fact, I think we've talked about it, but, uh, you know, there's at least like eight or nine fintech SPACs ready to go. So, it will not surprise me at all if a company like this is the one to go.
1: I was just going to add, to like, when I compare fintech and edtech's boom, I I can't believe I'm saying this, but I, I feel like I believe more in fintech's boom because unlike edtech. People are definitely expecting a decline in. There's going to be the decline in users when things reopen. I feel like with banks and with money, it's just so much sticky, so much more sticky that that's not going to happen at the same level. I just see so many ed tech companies completely losing people the moment things reopen. They'll keep some of that growth, but something about Robinhood and Chime's growth of new customers during this time feels a little less hard to erase.
0: I would stack it chime at the highest because people don't tend to change banks. I did that last year and it was miserable. And then I would say Robin hood number two. And then I would I'd take the lower, you yeah. know, lower bucket, but with, with some caveats, like, you know, if trading volume drops by half and everyone runs out of money, like Robinhood's hosed, but I mean, probably won't happen, but we'll see. We need to do a hard pivot into the world of femtech, uh, which is a controversial phrase describing a part of the startup and technology space that Natasha wanted to, um, to quibble with. And I think it's a good point. So I want to hear you out, Natasha, on why femtech is a crap phrase that we should probably not use. To
2: say that very carefully, femtech.
0: What did I say?
1: It sounds like fintech a little bit. Oh, I sorry, don't know. fem.
0: Sorry, sorry, <laughs> fem. From F-E-M. fintech to femtech.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think fem femtech, the wrong term for a couple reasons. One, people use the term to describe just products that women use versus women health products which is problematic. Like, like, for example, Revel is a company that uses, that helps elder women bond with each other and create experiences. They are not a women's health product, but just because they focus on women, people are saying that they're a femtech company, which is a problem. Also, the term kind of discounts the trans experience, people who don't identify in the fem category, but are an addressable customer in the category that people are using i think that it's just an exclusive term and i hate it so much but i think with like roe for example we don't hear you know man tech or male tech (laughs) and i don't think we need to unnecessarily gender by a sector of technology
0: no i agree with all that but in this case we do have a a a company that raised money that is aimed at women uh it's called willow it does uh wearable breast pumps it's raised 55 million dollars and this is on the agenda today because our producer who has children uh, raves about this product and so it gets a a in-house endorsement for being usable and 55 million led by nea and Maritech denny is always going to catch our attention uh, including they've raised a bunch of money total i think right they raised 155 million in total and you know i had no idea about
2: this because i don't have kids so it's not something i have to think about on a day-to-day basis you know but uh apparently you know willow joins naya health medela Lassano, and a bunch of other companies that are trying to make breast pumping much more efficient And and comfortable. I mean, one of the things that Willow's sort of two major innovations, uh, according to them, are one, it's cordless, so you can wear it on the go, so you're not restricted. You don't have to sit and pump. Was their language? You can go and pump. You can run and pump, which which presumably allows you to be a little more efficient. Given you know uh, the kids are at home, schools close, and a lot of things are going on. And then they also emphasize uh, unique suction. And I got to be honest, like when I read this, I was thinking about that, that advertisement from Orc years ago about, you know, or, or Dyson about their unique suction vacuum cleaners. But what they argue is that you really need to have the right properties of suction in order to pull the milk out of the breast. You can tell how much I know about this, by the way. It really, it really ha- ha- helps to have a husband to, to figure these sorts of products out. Um, uh, you're literally talking to the person. It's like asking me a pop culture question, but um, if you get the suction right, suction right, then the milk comes out of the breast much more easily. And, and therefore, it's a higher quality product. That's the argument for Willow. Clearly, it's it's selling to VCs because they've raised a lot of money.
1: And hardware is freaking expensive. I know a ton of companies that have shut down in the space. I know Moxley got acquired by Medela, but then kind of got tossed to the side. And I'm, I, I feel like that's probably why we're seeing a breast pump company raise so much money is the costs are probably very high
2: hardware is always hard right Hardware is always expensive but the, the the thing i think we've learned you know particularly in the exercise space the last couple of weeks with with peloton mirror and we've talked about some others who have joined that space is you know people will pay for high quality products i mean i might joke about dyson and suction but the reality is is that you know you breast pump every day it, it's a common thing it's actually quite painful and so if you can actually have a much more comfortable product that's much more convenient you know i don't know how much uh, do we know how much willow's product
0: costs i was just <laughs> about to say about five hundred dollars
2: it's a, it's a $500 Dang. product, which which sounds like a lot. But I, I mean, you're going to breastfeed for, you know, potentially a year or two. And and even beyond that, you know, if you have multiple kids, you'll, you'll reuse it. So to me, it's like it's an easy argument for an investment. It's a couple of pennies a, a day for you. So like it makes total sense if this is something that's helpful for you.
1: And Moxley's product was something around $80. So maybe $500 is the better price point to be to stay afloat. <laughs>
0: I mean, there's got to be better margins baked into that, that dollar amount. With 500 bucks, you can have some real margins. $80 is really thin uh, to generate any material. Margins well, you could have a
2: high-quality product. I mean, you know, the alternative, of course, is just a manual pump, right? And so when you're at 80 bucks, I mean, it doesn't make a huge difference that it's worth actually spending that.
0: The question is how many, how many uh, new moms can afford $500? I don't know. Um, I've given up trying to understand where the U.S. economy is in the coronavirus era because people seem to have either no money at all or a helicopter. So it's hard for me to tell um, where that lands.
2: But how many mothers are worth $500? 100%. Every single one Priceless. There you go. <laughs> priceless. Thanks.
1: Hopefully my mom hears me from upstairs. <laughs>
2: Talking about things that are may or may not be as uh, priceless, uh, VC media, which is one of our favorite topics. And so, we, you know, we all cover the VC industry quite a bit, but there have just been so many new initiatives and brands and media and news that we just kind of wanted to, Bollocks it up to all together into one group. So, I, I, the first thing here, I didn't even watch this. So, I, I regret being again misinformed about everything Let's in the world. This. Is, is primetime VC. Alex, I think, or, or Natasha, you, you watched this. What were your thoughts?
1: So, it's not a game show, but it is a game show, according to the creators. Basically, four VCs come on, they debate on to- like the hottest topics of the week, like TikTok, YC's demo day, Snowflake IPO, while doing so because. You know, they're not on equity, but they're on a show that's about VCs. They like can bring in their portfolio companies and mention that as kind of like the what gives me the right to talk about this. And the winner gets to do a monologue for 30 to 45 seconds at the end. Can be about a company, can be about innovation. Et cetera, et cetera, It has sponsorships.
2: I I, I I don't think this is going to work out well. I mean, last week we did a live equity episode from Disrupt with, with <laughs> two or three dozen VCs in the room and no one signed up for trivia night. And I had to but pretend see, like I was a, a VC again.
1: If we give the incentive and we're not, I, th- I think like, you know, we're, we're not, the, we're a little snippy. And I don't think <laughs> that primetime VC was snippy. I, I urge people, I mean, I urge Danny to watch it and I really want his take on it. And the next we'll we'll compete with
2: daytime soap TV. Even more VC media news, I guess, Andreessen, which already had a podcast and, and, and has like a larger media infrastructure than the
0: New York Times, is expanding into a bunch of new shows. Alex, give us the news there. So, I mean, podcasting is a, a big darn deal around the world. And as a non-podcast consumer, mostly, it's always been a bit of an enigma to me. But what we've seen is the rise of kind of micro media brands attached to non-traditional companies. And Andreessen, of course, is no is no slouch here. They've had a podcast that I'm sure you've heard of. Now they're doing a bunch more. They started podcasting back in 2014. This is a long time coming. And about a year ago, they launched a show called 16 Minutes. It was, shockingly enough, about 16 minutes in length. Call it the millennial 60 minutes. <laughs>
1: Anyways, they're about 40
0: apps in now, and they're going to go ahead and, and keep doing that. They found kind of product market fit, they claim, with the show. And so I, I think this matters not much that Andreessen's doing a thing with podcasts and doing more of them but it just goes to show that VC firms, once a capital repository with a couple of people and some assistants have become you know full service firms and now also to some degree media companies. So we're seeing the, the, um, the I don't know, the agglomerization or the blobberization of, of VC into more and more areas, trying to do thought leadership, trying to build their brand, trying to get deal access and deal flow Uh, It's a very competitive space and money is no longer anything close to sufficient to get into the best deals. So I'm not surprised by this. I'm not going to listen to it, but that's where I stand.
1: Um, I was going to say the kind of the person who launched the 16 Minutes podcast is Sonal Chokshi, who's great. She's really good at her job and she's an interesting human. I recommend following her on Twitter. I was excited to see a network being formed within Andreessen. Excited might be a strong word, but it's cool to see that bet happening. To your point, Alex, I think it's more than a one off. I think a lot of VCs have admitted to me off the record that we do a podcast. It's not great, but we need to do it just so we can say we did one. And so I'm always here for people who are actually going to try and not just do something easy. Why do they need to do a
0: podcast? I don't understand that. Someone explain that. Why to do me. I need to do a podcast? Why am I need a Because it's part of your job. You don't count. Why do VCs <laughs> need to do a podcast?
1: I guess just, you know, your personal brand, dare I say. And so it's I don't know, it's 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 an easy way to riff and be another way that people end up in you in your inbox is probably the reason. I don't know.
0: The number of VCs that are sufficiently interesting as to kind of consistently draw our attention are people like, you know, Tomas Tunga's from Redpoint who runs a great blog on kind of the SaaS space and he's fantastic. I mean, but I mean our our most People in the VC world sufficiently interesting as to be podcast material. Most journalists aren't, <laughs> but we're being honest, you know. So I, I'm not trying to I be appreciate rude to VCs. That. I
1: appreciate that, Alex. I agree. I think like there's like the running joke of like you you don't have to substack post everything. You could just tweet about it, or you can just not say it to anyone. Like every one of your ideas is not worth a substack post or an article. I, I
2: keep saying all I want is a mute button for the whole world. It really helps a lot. <laughs> um, That's called
0: vodka. That's cool. <laughs> I think it's mezcal right.
2: over here, but it works nonetheless. And then finally, we had a, a break. You know, news this week that uh, Casey Newton, who's been a longtime writer at The Verge, writes the Interface newsletter, has written hundreds of editions covering the platforms, uh, Facebook, Instagram, the whole nine yards, is leaving The Verge to launch on Substack. Got quite a bit of attention, I think, in the industry. I mean, that was basically my Twitter feed all day yesterday. Was people debating the future of email newsletters, Substack, the <laughs> future of media? I thought it was a bold bet. I hope he succeeds. He has a new—the newsletter is going to launch next month called—I think it's called the Platformer. Might be getting that wrong. I don't think it's just the platform; it's the Platformer. Yes. And you can sign up on Substack. So, I mean, another person going into the Substack universe—it's getting lonely out here in big corporate media world.
1: I was listening to Casey talk about this on Clubhouse yesterday. So, yeah, I'll make fun of myself for being on Clubhouse. I don't have any hot take on it, which is why I haven't blogged about it or brought it up because I didn't want to get roasted by anyone on this equity team. But no, he was talking about how he already has several hundreds of subscribers that are willing to pay in one day. And I think that was a nice thing to hear and see. Also, he has a mystery tier, which is you can pay kind of as much as you want, which was also cool. And he said a couple of people have bit that way too. Um, And so, I don't know. I'm always going to support a journalist making money.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is, so to be clear to everyone listening to the show, like I think a, a great chunk of journalists who currently work for big media Have their eye on what Casey is doing, on what Alex K from BuzzFeed News is doing, which is setting out on their own. One of the most compelling things that Casey Newton said in his, I think, I forget if this was the the Twitter storm or the post that I read or whatever the hell. He said there's uncapped upside. You know, a media company is going to never pay you more than X, right? So... You can't ever make more than that. But if you build your own pub and it goes well, which for most people it won't, because it's going to be kind of a niche thing and so forth. But it can, in fact, make you a lot more money. Everyone wants to be Ben Thompson from Stechery. Everyone wants to make that kind of money. One person does. Maybe the answer will be seven people that can do it. I'm not surprised that Casey is doing this given his personal brand and his newsletter that's done so well. And also the fact that he's just lovely. He's very, very smart. He's a lovely person. And uh, people like him a lot. So it's a great combination of things.
1: He is lovely. But that said, you know, Ben, Casey, and Alex are all white guys. And I think that the access on who can start an email newsletter is something we should all continue to track. I tweeted at Substack yesterday asking them for their diversity metrics. Have not <sighs> heard back yet. Yeah, you're but... not hearing back
0: from that for a while.
1: <laughs> Casey the mentioned years. in his Twitter thread that he is going to start kind of helping shadow other newsletter writers that come from underrepresented backgrounds, which could be great, but would love to just see it actually happen too and see like money go towards getting those writers to to move on to this platform if that's something they want to do.
0: Yeah, I think we're going to see more and more of this as time goes along, especially if the email um, subscription boom continues. I don't think it will because email is terrible, but I think it was a great hack to get some people independent. And with that, uh, that's our show. Uh, two of us will be back next week and it won't be me. Bye. Like I got... I got bean juice. Beet juice? I bean. hate that. Bean oh. Juice. Ew. Oh, oh, What the
2: hell is that?
1: Coffee.
0: <laughs> Magic bean juice. Uh, oh god. I thought you were like taking I'm out... little bit of a little recording of I
1: know. I'm like, that's disgusting. I have I I thought Laquois. you were
0: like... <laughs>
2: grabbing uh, bean juice. I was like, you're taking like pinto beans and pureeing them into some sort of I'm juice concoction. i can, can, can we I was do an I was like, extended... I don't know what's going wrong with Providence, but like
0: something bad is happening and it needs to be excised immediately. Something's rotten in Fox Point. Uh, Chris, can we do an extended outta- outtake at the end just to show people what the pre-show is actually like? Because I think they probably <laughs> presume it's this intellectual conversation when in reality, it's pinto jokes. Apparently,
1: bean It wasn't it was even a stuff.
0: joke. It's, it, it, it It's a crime against humanity is what it is. All right. All right. Uh, On that note, let's do a a show. Hey, Ford Pinto. I practiced my intro in the shower, so I should be ready. It burns on the way in. It burns on the way out. Danny,
1: (laughs) (laughs) I have to not laugh. I'd
2: like to point out that our top story for the last two days has been about toilet papers.